Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, with a message titled, Innocent of the Blood of All. So let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 27, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I wonder if you've ever thought about what you would like to say if it was your final words. What do you want to say to your family, to your friends, your church, your work colleagues, those you've been praying for for many years? There are a number of farewell speeches in the Bible, so if you're wondering what you'd like to say, why don't you study those and find out what they said and see if what they said speaks to what you'd like to say. Go to Genesis 49, read Jacob's final words to his family. See what he says. Go to Joshua 23 and 24. Read the farewell address of Joshua given to the entire nation. How about Samuel's farewell speech for Samuel 12? Now, of course, there is no greater farewell speech than the farewell speech of Jesus given in the upper room, John 13 to 17. Uh, Did you know that farewell speeches are only as good as the life that has been lived? And that if one has lived it well and trusted in God and lived in submission to his commands and turned from evil towards the Lord, farewell speeches tend to be good. I can tell you this, as a pastor, I've heard some farewells that have left me emotional and in grateful tears. And I've heard some that were either filled with false teaching or some that amounted to nothing. Some have nothing to say in the end, and I would think that to be a reflection of a life that has never lived for eternity. And now that eternity is before them, there's nothing to say. The latter part of Acts 20 is not the end of Paul's life, but it's the end of his free movements. It marks the end of his ministry in Asia and Greece. It marks the beginning of what will become his imprisonment, and eventually it will lead to his beheading. You know, I've often thought that that no one ever knows where or when they're going to turn a corner, and life will not be what it was before. This now is Paul leaving Greece and Asia. He's bound for Jerusalem, and everything is about to change. And Paul has a sense of that, and so he's giving last words as that part of his life is now closing. So what's he going to say? And as we're going to see, he will say that he's innocent of the blood of all. When the final judgment comes, no one's going to point a finger at Paul and say, you didn't make plain the implications of the gospel. Now, Paul has sailed from the coast of Greece at Neapolis. He has come to a place on the Asian coast, which is a port city. The city's name is Miletus. He he could have walked from there, two days' walk, and he could have arrived back in Ephesus, the city where he had ministered for three years. But he's unwilling to go. In fact, Acts 20, verse 17 says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Everywhere Paul went, without exception, he had appointed elders in every city. They were never just one elder. They were always a group of elders. Later, Paul would write to both Timothy and then to Titus, and he would describe the qualifications of elders. Elders are what we like to call pastors today. Their task was to preach and to teach as well as to give oversight to the church. And on a side note, you know, in the modern church today, we often think of elders as the board members who give leadership and to the pastors as those who are accountable to the elders and are called upon to preach and teach and counsel and so forth. That model is not found in the Bible. Elders and pastors, that's the same thing. Elders are pastors, pastors are elders, elders are preachers and teachers, as well as those who give oversight to the church. So it seems to me that when the elders of the church of Ephesus received the message that Paul was at Miletus, 
and that this might be the last opportunity they would ever have of meeting with him, they seem to have come without hesitation. And when they're gathered together, Paul gives them the last words they're going to hear from him. What will he say? Oh, we can't deal with all that he says today. We're going to take two days to examine his closing address. The latter part of the address will deal with instructions and warnings, as well as areas of ministry that they must be careful to address. That's for tomorrow. But in the first part of the speech, Paul is going to declare why it is, as a minister of the gospel, when he's called upon to stand before Christ and give an account, as we must all do, why it is that he's so confident that he's not guilty of the blood of those who have heard him preach and teach. So let's divide this part of Paul's address into three parts. First, in Acts 20, verses 18 to 21, Paul describes his ministry. What did it consist of? When we evaluate that, we're going to see not only the job description of an elder or a pastor, but also we'll see that in some way, the elder exemplifies something. We're all to follow the elder. Now, second, in verses 22 to 25, we're going to see Paul as a man who follows the promptings of the Holy Spirit and who's constrained. Well, I mean, that's an old word, I know. A man who's obligated to do that which the Holy Spirit directs him to do, regardless of the cost, and to do that until he dies. And then third and finally, in verses 26 and 27, we're going to see why Paul can confidently say that he's not guilty of the blood of anyone. So good, let's begin. Paul describes the nature of his ministry from the time he was called until now. Acts 20, 18 to 21. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to notice Paul's progression of thought. Paul said, for the three years I was among you, did you notice how I lived? So how did he live? Well, the answer is found in verse 19. He says, he served the Lord. And literally, he says, he was a slave of the Lord. That is to say, like any ancient servant, his life was not his own. It belonged to another. See, for that reason, he wasn't free to do what he wanted with his life. He was obligated to do what his master Jesus called him to do. That was his life. And you'll remember this was abundantly clear shortly after his conversion. Ananias was told to lay his hands on him so that his sight might be restored. And then Ananias is told, and here I'm reading Acts 9, 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, that is to Ananias, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, Paul never chose his call. It was thrust on him. He was never given permission to depart from it. And he would do this until the day he died. And that explains everything about Paul. His life wasn't his own. It belonged to another. Did you know, child of God, that is also true of you? You must be about your master's business, doing that which has been assigned to you. And furthermore, you may not abandon your post until he calls you again. And notice also that for Paul, It's not enough to say that he's a servant of the Lord. Notice he defines what kind of a servant he is. First, he says, with all humility. Indeed, you know, that's what Paul's thought in the flesh, this thing that he called a messenger of Satan. What was that? 
He said it was that thing that prevented him from becoming proud. It's not a side statement. God opposes the proud, says Scripture. He gives grace to the humble. It was Augustine who once said that those who learn the ways of God must also learn three things. The first, humility. The second, humility. The third, yeah, you guessed it, humility. And then in defining his servanthood, Paul adds that he was a servant with tears. Of course he was. And here I don't think that Paul has his persecutions in mind. He has in mind the agony that he felt over the church and over the people of God. He loved God's people. Listen to 2 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? See, that's a part of the passage where Paul says he feels daily the pressure for what he sees happening in the churches. His love for them. The third characteristic of Paul's servanthood is that with trials that happened because of the plots of the Jews. And here he means the synagogue, leadership, that regularly plotted against him. They were constantly the source of his persecution. But through all of that, says Paul, he didn't shrink back from declaring that which was profitable to them. That is, there's nothing in the gospel, be it the glories of heaven or the warnings of hell, be it the freedom of the life of the Spirit or the bondage of the power of the flesh, be it the kingdom of love or be it warfare against the demonic realm. He never left anything out because of either pressure that some people might have put on him that he might, you know, preach on a certain theme or refrain from preaching on another theme. Paul never did any of that. He preached what was necessary. And notice in summing up, Paul says he preached repentance toward God. That is, that the convert must turn from all known sin. Not one sin is allowed to remain. All must be thoroughly renounced. That was clear from his teaching. And then he says, of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say, one must now entrust one's life, one's lifestyle, one's future into the hands of Jesus, trusting in him alone, in his cross alone, to renounce trust in one's own righteousness, trusting alone in the righteousness of Jesus. That's what he preached. We're coming to the end of your opportunity to register for the Back to the Bible Canada 2023 Israel Experience from April 16th to the 24th. The time is drawing close and we're nearing capacity. So if you've been thinking about joining us for the Israel Experience 2023 with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Lathagain's Phil Calloway, special musical guest Amanda Stott, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, now's the time. We're also offering an optional Jordan extension, April 24th to the 29th. So seize the day and join us in the Holy Land. Numbers are limited, so register soon. Please note that all costs associated with this event are paid for by the participants. No ministry funds are used. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. When Paul said he went from house to house, he's no doubt referring to the house churches that had sprung up in Ephesus. And so Paul spoke daily in the hall of Tyrannus, but he also spoke in all the churches throughout the city. He spoke to both Jews and Greeks, and wherever he spoke, the message was always the same. 
He wasn't cowed by his audience. Indeed, because he was a servant of Christ, his message was that which Christ had taught him and had given him. Well, very good. The first part of Paul's speech was his description of his own ministry. That was important for the Ephesian elders to hear because they needed to be the same way. They, like him, were to view themselves as servants of Jesus, and therefore the message they preached had better be the very message that Paul preached as well. You might remember that Paul would later write to Timothy as he was ministering in Ephesus. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, he would say, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. See, that's true for all in our day. But the elder who's a servant of Jesus has no option as to what to say. You don't abandon sound doctrine because it's no longer popular. No servant of Jesus would do that. Now, the second part of Paul's speech. Paul gets very specific now about what it's like to be a servant of Jesus. To be one, he says, requires that you have to be sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And then to do what the Holy Spirit prompts you to do. Acts 20, verses 22 to 25. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. The important word here is the word constrained. You know, others have translated that word as compelled. The Greek word carries with it the meaning of force. That is to force someone to do something. It's to make them do something. The Ephesian elders knew that, that Paul had a desire to go to Jerusalem. You can read about that, you know, back in Acts 19, 21. He had said that he would go to Jerusalem, and then he added after that, I must also see Rome. Now, those things can be said in a number of ways. You know, a person might say, I must get to Australia before I die. I just must see kangaroos, the outback, Ayers Rock. I mean, you you get the idea. That is, you know, I want something so bad that after a while of wanting it, it becomes a must. That is, if I don't get it, it'll feel like everything else isn't worth it. Now, left on its own, If all we had ever heard Paul saying is that he must go to Jerusalem, and if you knew that he was delivering an offering for the poor Christians there, and if you knew that this opportunity was also an opportunity to build greater solidarity between Jews and Gentile Christians, well, if we heard only that, we might say, Paul just had a passion for that kind of thing. It's just what he has to do. That's his personal vision, and it's become a must for him. That's not how Paul is expressing himself here. He is going to Jerusalem because... The Holy Spirit has compelled him to go. He's constrained him. He is not permitted even to follow the Ephesian elders back to Ephesus and spend more time there because he's received a divine command from the Holy Spirit. I know that many times people are going to ask, well, how did the Holy Spirit tell Paul that? I mean, did he receive a vision? Was it an audible voice? I mean, perhaps, but he doesn't say. You know, it might have simply been an inner sense of the Holy Spirit urging him. And if I might, although it's not the point of this passage, I think that all believers should become aware of the promptings and the nudgings of the Holy Spirit. And Paul's saying that the nudging of the Spirit was so strong, he knew it would tantamount to mutiny against God should he say no and not go to Jerusalem. 
And then having explained that, Paul goes even further. He says that he's going even though he knows very clearly what's going to happen to him when he goes there. He says that the Holy Spirit has not only ordered him to go to Jerusalem, but the Holy Spirit has told him that two things await him there. The first, when he goes, he's going to go to jail. And the second thing that's going to happen is afflictions. You know, that word affliction means, you know, trouble involving direct sufferings. Again, we come back to what Jesus had shown Ananias shortly after Paul's conversion. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then if we take that thought and go to the next chapter in Acts 21, you know, Agabus the prophet tells Paul he's going to be bound hand and foot. And then when others hear Agabus saying that, they urge Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. But they don't understand. He's a man under orders. He's under compulsion. He can't say no to going to Jerusalem. He's not free to chart his own course. His life is not his own. Many people, when they read verse 24, think it's almost an impossible verse. Paul says that he doesn't account his life of any value. And then he adds, he doesn't find his life precious to himself. I say that many find this incomprehensible because in our eyes, our lives are of great value. There's nothing more precious than life. So let's be clear. Paul's not saying that life isn't precious. It is for Paul. And for all human beings who are created in the image of God, we're created in God's image, and hence our life is precious. But Paul wants to communicate that the value of his life is not the ultimate value. He means to say that if I put things on a scale, or if I rate things in accordance to importance, what stands at the top of the list? That is, if the Holy Spirit commands me to go to Jerusalem, and if that should cost me my life, what would I think most precious? Is it most precious that I should live, or is it most precious that I should be obedient to the commands of God? Will I say that the steadfast love of the Lord and his approval is better than life? Or will I say that life is better than the steadfast love of God? Which is it going to be? And Paul's saying, I don't think my life is more precious than my obedience to Jesus. And when, my dear listener, you hear him saying that, do you think it to be foreign for him to say that? Or do you say, with Paul, I say the same. I also don't think my life is more precious than obedience to Christ, and that's it. Now then, Paul adds the words, if only I may finish the course of ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus. That is, if I say that I'm a servant of Jesus, then that service has got to mean something. You know, there's an old adage, the rubber has to meet the road. Or it has to get practical. It's got to mean that I'll do what Christ has called me to do in this very specific thing, in going to Jerusalem, even though I know that if I go to Jerusalem, they're going to put me into prison. But how would I ever say I'm a servant of Jesus if I don't go to Jerusalem and go to prison? Don't you see? It must also be so with you, my dear listener and of me as well. We must be constrained. We must be imprisoned by Jesus so that we no longer say that our lives are our own. We must say, not I, but Christ in me. Now, says Paul, because of this, because I'm a Christ slave, I know I'll never see your face again. So let's review. Paul has defined himself a servant of Jesus. Then he's spoken in a specific way how he serves Jesus. Now he's ready to make a declaration about what awaits him on the day of judgment. Acts 20, 26, and 27. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, the blood of all. 
Paul means that every human being will be judged before God. He's alluding to Ezekiel 33, verse 4. Ezekiel says that the man who watches over the city, that is the watchman, when he sees danger approaching, maybe it's a foreign army, he's got to blow the trumpet and prepare the city for battle. In the same way, there's a danger approaching the entire human race. God will one day hold every human being accountable for their sins. There's coming a judgment in which the human race will be called upon not only to give an account, but will be punished for their sin against God and his holiness. And Paul knows he's the watchman on the wall. He's declaring to the city that Christ, by his life, his death, his, his resurrection, has provided forgiveness of sins. Your sins can be cast onto Christ, and thus they will be atoned for. Only repent now and entrust your soul into the hands of Christ. But who can say when they've done enough? Who can say that they've not left anything undone in calling people to Christ? And Paul answers that question for every elder that seeks to be faithful. And this was a message to the Ephesian elders, but it's a message to every elder, every pastor of the church of Jesus in all of history. You can know that you'll be guiltless of the blood of others if you, you, preach the whole counsel of God. That is, if you preach it all, not your favorite topics, not your favorite verses, but the entire counsel of God. That means the complete revelation that God has left us. That means that one doesn't hold back anything that God has revealed in his word. Elders hold back nothing in season or out of season. It's the challenge of every faithful servant of God. It's also the understanding that we too will have to give an account. And we don't wish to be guilty of misleading people or of their ruin or of their blood. Let's be innocent of the blood of all. Thanks, John. John, I'm thinking back on the quote you shared from Augustine, that those who learn the ways of God must learn three things. The first is humility. The second is humility. The third, humility. You know, this is a great challenge for all of God's people, particularly leaders, but could you give us a sense of what godly humility looks like as opposed to false humility? Yeah, I, I think um, godly humility means not thinking too little of ourselves. You see, it's not having a, you know, some kind of an inferiority complex, but it's not thinking too much of ourselves. I think it's beginning to think less of ourselves, more of God, and more of the people that we're ministering to. And in this self-forgetfulness that I think is where true humility is to be found. So uh, let's strive to be God-centered rather than self-centered. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for our final message of the series, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. We live in a fallen world. We're called to live God-honoring, Bible-based lives, but society would seem opposed. How are we to illuminate and influence a culture that rejects the truths of Scripture? Well, Back to the Bible Canada has a new resource to help us do just that. 10 Christian Essentials for Cultural Change. It's a new booklet that presents 10 impactful ways we can affect and influence the world around us. Each chapter also contains probing questions to reflect upon and suggestions as to how each of us might integrate these essentials into our daily lives and relationships. Derived from Dr. John Newfeld's audio series and alternative lifestyle, 
This is a resource designed to engage the reader to make a difference. Request your free copy today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.